You're listening to a podcast from the University College Dublin School of English, Drama and Film. In this podcast, from one April to another, 2016 to 1916, a reading by Leah Mills, UCD Arts Council writer-in-residence and author of the acclaimed novel Fallen, which was chosen for Dublin Belfast, Two Cities, One Book for 2016. The reading took place in the UCD Student Centre on the 28th of April, 2016. It was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Leah Mills was introduced by the head of UCD School of English Drama and Film, Professor Danielle Clark. Good evening. The sun is actually shining at the moment. Um, and I'd like to welcome colleagues, friends, students, uh, family members. It's wonderful to see a packed room and that commemoration fatigue hasn't yet claimed any victims here. Um, this reading is an annual event which usually marks the end of the period of residency of the UCD Arts Council Writer-in-Residence, which is such a key part of the vibrancy of creative writing in UCD, and we're deeply grateful to the Arts Council for their continuing support, in particular Sarah Bannon and to Helen Meany, who I think is here. But it also marks the end of the teaching year for us um, and provides an opportunity to reflect on the year gone by and, and what a year it's been. The MA Creative Writing class of 2015 to 16 have been truly blessed, as has the school, by the presence of people who are not only great writers, um, but also gifted and generous teachers. Anne Enright is Irish Laureate for Fiction, um, coincidentally, but not quite simultaneously lecturing in New York on Maeve Brennan this evening. Paula Meehan as Ireland Professor of Poetry and Leah Mills as Writer-in-Residence. Fittingly too, of course, Leah's wonderful novel Fallen, the two cities, one book choice for 2016. And once again, we acknowledge the support of Dublin City Libraries and specifically welcome Jane Alger tonight, ends on the 28th of April, 1916. And of course, Bloomsday proves that fictional anniversaries are indeed a thing. Um, and it ends with a private moment in the midst of a fully public event, uh, a leap into, imagine, an, into an imagined future, even as the city implodes around Kate and Hubie. And also, in a rather Cassandra-ish moment, the narrator states, but there'd been no summer yet. <laughs> the book, I know, has been and is being avidly read and discussed across the city and beyond. There is, to my certain knowledge, at least one copy of the novel in Beijing. Um, and I know that that process of conversation and discussion and debate will be a source of great delight to Leah. So the constant movement between fiction, myth-making and history, which has been such a feature of the rising itself, has of course been very much to the fore over the course of this commemorative year. And the response of writers and of writers connected with UCD has been both humbling and extraordinary. I can't let the occasion pass, of course, without mentioning the triumph of signatories, not only a UCD production through and through, but rather specifically, as I keep pointing out all the time, a School of English Drama and Film project, not involving just uh, alumni of the school, but also current members of the staff, Frank McGuinness, Ailish Nagrivna and Lucy Collins. But I'd also like, in her absence, to congratulate Ailish on her induction into the Hennessy Literary Awards Hall of Fame, I think, this evening. I have a few brief words of thanks to say to Jason Masterson for securing the room. I wanted to work some joke in about Jane Eyre and the Red Room, but couldn't get it to work. Um, and to Mike Liffey for producing the podcast of tonight's event. I'd also like to thank Pauline Slattery and Karen Jackman for all, they work, all the work they do on a daily basis to ensure that everything runs smoothly and with good humour uh, to boot and biscuits and cakes. <laughs> Particular thanks go to Karen for her organisation of this evening's events. 
Margaret Keller her, has also played a central role in tonight's uh, occasion, as in so much else, and I'd like to thank her publicly for all the work that she does for the school and the people in it. In addition, I'd like to pay tribute to James Ryan, um, who's built up creative writing in the school from very modest beginnings to the fine and highly regarded programme we have today, where writer, writing and writers are an integral part of our programmes. Uh, the vision of Anne Enright in Theatre L will linger rather long in my memory. Leah's links with UCD are, of course, as many of you in the room know, of very long standing. Um, her connections to women's studies still endure and are very clearly manifested in her work. One of my favourite parts of Fallen is the portrait of the feminist Professor Hayden. Her novel also reveals a commitment to scholarship as the underpinning of creative work. You just have to look at the archival sources in the acknowledgements to Fallen to see that. But her work here in UCD this year has been nothing short of inspirational. I see the animated conversations amongst groups of students after her classes, and I know then that what, what they're learning is having a transformative effect. So I'm delighted to introduce her tonight and to thank her formally and publicly for her contribution to the school. Thank you. Thank you very much, Danielle. And hello, everyone. May have been a mistake to mention the sunshine in case everybody leaves. <laughs> yeah, I would also like to thank Karen and Margaret for organising tonight, and also the Arts Council for funding the residency. Um, and I want to thank my colleagues and all my students for the welcome they gave me and for making me feel at home as soon as I arrived. Um, and to Dublin City Libraries and the UNESCO Office for the Dublin City One Book Festival, um, which does so much to promote literature and reading, and especially Jane Alger. And in another coincidence, that programme is coming to an end tonight as well, so a lot of circles are coming full for me this evening. Um, titles are peculiar things. They have a power all of their own. When I suggested this one to Margaret from one April to another. I don't need the vaguest notion of what it could mean. Um, but I think the time has come to give Fallen a bit of a rest. I think the city may be in Fallen fatigue, never mind commemoration <laughs> fatigue. And so uh, I'm going to read an essay. But first, I just want to say that uh, on the 12th of April, 10 years ago in 2006, I was diagnosed with mouth cancer. Um, I've been reading the corresponding entries day by day all this month and being here tonight doing this, coming to the end of this amazing once-in-a-lifetime experience is just the most incredible gift. So I want to say thank you for being here to share it with me. Um, and I hadn't fully registered this date either when we planned it, but of course it coincides with the final date recorded in Fallen, which I won't read because it gives too much away and there may be people in the room who haven't read it yet. So instead, I'm going to read an essay and I know that's an unusual choice, but it feels like the right thing to do. It's about moving on. Um, I'm going to read from It Could Be You, which features in the current issue of The Stinging Fly and is about to be republished in Lacunae, which is a Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalytic journal. Um, I've cut some passages, but it's quite long, so I hope you're all sitting comfortably. This came to me. I was standing in a queue at the bank one day watching the news the way you do, the way they keep the news up there to keep us docile while we're waiting for our money. And it suddenly struck me, this is what it might have been like 
In the GPO that Monday, the separation women queuing up for their allowances, people wanting stamps, people wanting to admire the building because it had just been renovated and had only been reopened a matter of weeks before. So um, that was the idea behind this essay. It's called It Could Be You, and it's in nine sections, so you can keep track of them. This is one. A woman sitting at her window was shot dead in broad daylight. She was reading. Sitting at a window with a book would be like, say, spreading a towel on hot sand so you can lie down and ask the sun to coax the damp of a northern climate from your bones. You don't expect a gunman. You could be standing in line at a bank with the news on continuous feed. You're bored out of your mind following the running heads about a foreign war, a city falling, families displaced. You look away from a burning car, bodies on the ground. It's lunchtime and the queue is long. Your feet hurt. You're hoping the money's in because there's bills to pay. There's always bills. And you're behind with the rent and the kids need a decent meal, not just pasta. Dear God, you're sick of pasta. It's close in here. Someone in the queue has B.O. You're sweaty under your hair. Maybe it smells funky too. And something loud happens. Glass breaking. A shouty voice. Everybody out. Get out. At first you don't get it, but piece by piece you make sense of it. That man there jumped the counter. The teller who was there before went down under him the way they do in rugby. People in ugly clothes wave guns and sticks and break things. Over there, people are being herded into a back office. There's arguing, shouts, more glass breaks. People edge towards the door. Someone grips your arm. Your heart skips, but it's only the woman who was behind you in the queue saying, come on, and you do. The pair of you shoved through the crowd swarming the door as though you've always known what elbows are really for. Outside, you breathe deep, gaspy breaths. Your ribs are sore from holding onto and look back where some skinny kid is hanging a flag you've never seen before from a window. Two. The first fatalities were policemen, after which the law crept away and hid for the duration. The cavalry arrived. Their horses were shot from under them. A band of older reservists who had been sports stars in their youth were on their way home back to barracks from manoeuvres in the mountains. The real war was off on the continent. The words Georges Rex were stitched into their tunics, so they were inevitably known in Dublinese as the Gorgeous Rex. It's a long walk from the mountains, but they were nearly there. I'd say their feet were sore, their minds fixed on whatever brew waited for them in the barracks. They carried guns, but no ammunition. You could say that they were armed. You could say they were unarmed. The true thing is that they were shot on a sunny spring day on the streets of their own city. Some of them were killed. The gunmen cut off the phones. They cut off the gas. They turned dogs and cats loose from the pound so they wouldn't starve. They smashed windows and furniture and blocked the streets. They dug themselves in among the citizens, into businesses and homes in the heart of the city, and waited for the soldiers to come for them. They took hostages. They hijacked cars and vans and bicycles. If citizens resisted, they were shot. The trams and trains stopped running. The soldiers came. At first, before they got properly into the swing of things, both sides would cease fire long enough to yell at the citizens to let them at it, to go home out of harm's way. But they were slow to cop on, those people. They couldn't believe what their eyes and ears were telling them, that they could be gunned down on the same streets where they lived and worked and shopped where their children went to school, where they leaned on sills to gossip with the neighbours. 
citizens were shot, scores of them, hundreds of them actually, by the time it was over. They say a blind man feeling his way across an empty road with a white stick was shot by a sniper and lay there moaning, hurt, helpless. They say the St. John's ambulance man who went out in the open to help him to safety was shot dead, that the sniper shot the blind man to finish him off. More soldiers came. The gunmen killed them. Gunmen were killed. The city turned on itself, let rip. In an orgy of destruction, it laid waste to its own impoverished, ravenous self. The stables caught fire. More windows were broken. Holes were knocked in walls. There was looting. There was chaos. A man who tried to stop it was lifted by the soldiers who used him as a hostage while they drove around. A human shield. Then they shot him. They shot journalists. They made a boy kneel in the street and then they shot shot him. More soldiers came. There will always be more soldiers. There was a curfew. There were roadblocks. People went hungry. There were bombs. A woman sat by a window reading. She was shot. All the windows broke. Inside the city, people tried to help. They went out in cars to carry the injured to hospitals. They took bleeding strangers into their homes. They brought food and sheets and towels to emergency clinics set up in living rooms and kitchens. The ambulance drivers drove through flames, the firemen, the doctors and the nurses. Two girls went out under fire to carry cups of water to dying men. A man went out onto the steps of his house to see what he could do. Hours before, there'd been a bloodbath there. He'd helped to carry injured men and boys in uniform to safety. They shot him there. They killed him. On the Thursday, Dublin began to burn in earnest. The soldiers made the firemen stand down so the buildings would blaze away to nothing and they'd have a clear line of sight to their targets. Glass melted and ran down the walls. People stood on the hills outside their city and watched it burn. The gunmen surrendered. They were rounded up for jail. The general ordered their leaders to be shot. The soldiers shot them. Connolly so badly wounded they had to tie him to a chair to shoot him. That's where our national creation myth began. And just to make sure that it would grow into an unstoppable motivating force, more than 3,000 men and women were rounded up to be interned in English and Irish jails. By the time they came home, they were heroes. Three. Pierce said he would surrender, not because they'd been burned out of the GPO and were tracking back through burning streets that led to the massed and waiting arms of the British Army, but to spare the citizens of Dublin. You'd have to wonder, did he look out the windows at all in the previous week? Did he listen? 485 people were killed in Dublin that week, more citizens than rebels and British Army put together. Almost one in five of them were under 19 years old. 100,000 people, one third of the population of the city, had to go on relief because they'd lost everything in the fires. Meanwhile, the war in Europe continued. In just one battle on just one day of that week, Thursday, while the fires in Dublin took hold in earnest and the firemen were held back, the 16th Irish Division of the British Army were subjected to a gas attack at Hullock in France. There were 1,980 casualties. 570 were killed outright and many more to die later, their lungs in tatters. They say the German soldiers held up placards to let the Irish soldiers know what was happening at home. These facts were not exactly hidden, but it's safe to say they were obscured. Yes, I think it's safe to say that. The story we were told had different starting points. 
all leading to the moment when a gallant band of patriotic men and women set out to wrest their country back from the ancient enemy, the 800 years, the few against the many, the sacrifice. The story we were told was heavy on the sacrifice, how close it came to martyrdom. No, wait, it was a kind of martyrdom, a noble thing to die for faith or country, and sure in Ireland didn't they amount to the same thing. Never mind if that's what millions of others were doing on the continent and elsewhere, all for the sake of one ism or another. Four. It's hard to think about 485 people dead in the space of a week, even though we see it on our screens so often now. It means more when you look at them singly, the man on his doorstep, the blind man with his stick, the ambulance man who went to help him, the woman sitting at her window. I'd say she was minding her own business, but since she was reading at the time, there's no knowing what business she was actually about. Reading was how we got off the island and into the light of broader, more supple ways of thinking when I was a teenager. It seemed to be the case that writers who questioned or undermined our most sacred assumptions about ourselves had to shut up or get out. Spare a thought for the administration that allowed inflammatory language to run unchecked in print and on the streets. Look where it got them. Our own crowd were less tolerant later. In the interests of controlling our sense of who we are and what we might become, they were enthusiastic in the redaction and censorship of books and films. If a book was seen as anti-Catholic, anti-Irish or anti-the Irish Catholic values we were all supposed to share, it didn't stand a chance. Books were burned, denounced from the pulpit and outright banned. Anyone who didn't like all this could leave, weren't we better off without them? I first read Edna O'Brien's A Pagan Place when I was 15. It blew my mind wide open. Soon afterwards, I read John McGahern's The Dark. They were both banned, which was partly why I read them in the first place. <laughs> I hid them inside false covers and read them in plain view at school. Between them, they set off seismic tremors in my mind. Truth was possible in fiction, even in Irish fiction. Fiction could be real. For the first time, I was almost as interested in the writers as in their books. I wanted to know who they were, how they'd found the courage to do it, what price they'd had to pay. Where were they now? Elsewhere, of course. That's what happened if you put your truth on paper. You went into exile. John McGahern changed everything when he came back. He published another novel and he stayed. If you're looking for examples of courage and radical turning points, that's as good as any and better than most. You'll say this was back in the last century, and it was. You'll say the times were different, and they were. But this is still true. Reading matters. Reading changes minds. Five. You grow up with a deep, unchanging physical love of this country, a fierce attachment to certain places, the curved blue shoulder of mountains reaching an arm around a city, the long tongue of the sea moving in the mouth of a bay, its many voices, stony ground, scarlet setting suns, mirrored lakes and empty beaches, the sensation of cool moss on the bared sole of a tired foot, the human scale of its cities, the crooked roof lines of a street. You share its sense of humour, its fluency, its spite. It hurts to leave these things as so many of us must, for reasons to do with the state, which is not quite the same thing as the nation, and certainly not the same as the country. A state is less easy to love. 
These days we have what can feel like a numbing habit of referendums. Look at the recent list. On judicial salaries and on giving additional powers to Oireachtas committees in 2011, on the European Fiscal Treaty, May 2012, on children's rights, November 2012, on the abolition of the Shannad and establishment of a Court of Appeal, November, uh, October 2013, and many more on the horizon. We only get to have a say in shaping our constitution thanks to the battles the 1916 leaders fought. But during this increasingly tedious series of campaigns, the seditious thought that they had no mandate for their action crept into my mind. That if we woke up one morning now in the 21st century to find the city taken over by armed men whose intentions were unclear, our feelings would not in any way relate to the gratitude and reverence we're supposed to feel for the signatories of the proclamation, the almost incantatory sound of their names. The recent marriage referendum was a different thing entirely. That amendment was passed on a wave of joy and hope like nothing I've seen on this island ever. It was a real and utterly bloodless revolution, and the change was born of stories told with great courage and, pe and belief in people's ability to hear and understand them. Six. In December 1915, Porrick Pierce wrote of the war in Europe. The last 16 months have been the most glorious in the history of Europe. Heroism has come back to the earth. The old heart of the earth needed to be warmed with the red wine of the battlefields. It sounds mad now, knowing what we know about that war, but he wasn't by any means the only one to deliver this kind of rhetoric across Europe at the time. Take Tom Kettle, for example constitutional nationalist, parliamentarian, poet and economics professor at UCD. When the German army invaded Belgium in August 1914, Tom Kettle happened to be there buying guns for the national volunteers. He stayed on for a couple of months as war correspondent for the Daily News. In one of his dispatches he wrote, War is hell, but it's only a hell of suffering, not of dishonour, and through it, over its flaming coals, justice must walk were it on bare feet. Kettle was a Redmondite. Back in Ireland, he joined the British Army and became quite the poster boy, urging Irish men to enlist. Redmondites believed that the contribution of Irish men would support the case for home rule once the war was over. Rhetoric is one thing. The reality was different. It is a grim and awful job, Kettle wrote to his wife Mary from the battlefield. No man can be up to it. His poem for their daughter Betty shows a shift in his awareness of how conflicts are manipulated. They'll give you rhyme and reason, some will call the thing sublime, and some decry it in a knowing tone. So here, while the mad guns curse overhead, and tired men sigh with mud for couch and floor, Know that we fools now with the foolish dead died not for flag, nor king, nor emperor. The poem acknowledges something else again. You'll ask why I abandoned you to dice with death. Many of the executed leaders were fathers. Many of the soldiers who were killed during Easter week were fathers too. Others were only boys. The citizens who died ticked all the relationship and gender boxes. Fathers, mothers, siblings, children, friends. 485 fatalities. That's a lot of futures stolen and families destroyed. A lot of lives ruptured and thrown off course. 
a lot, they might say today, of collateral damage. Collateral damage is the kind of phrase we have to resist. Language matters. If you want to desensitise people, first you drain words of meaning, attach antiseptic labels to actions, restrict the options for understanding or sympathy with the thing to be destroyed, whatever or whoever that is. On the other hand, if you want to incite people to hatred, words will do it. Language gets under your skin. The way music can interfere with the rhythm of your walk, language can either disorder or ignite your thinking. It sets the neurons firing differently. There are medical tests that require you not to read because it causes demonstrable changes in your brain. The words we use matter. They have destructive as well as creative potential. And reading changes minds. So does experience. Exposure to the reality of war changed Kettle's ideas. In a letter to a friend from the battlefield, he wrote, If I live, I mean to spend the rest of my life working for perpetual peace. He was killed at the Somme on September the 9th, 1916, four months after the executions in the Stonebreaker's Yard of Kilmainham Jail. He was 36 years old. He left a wife, Mary, Chiefy, and daughter, Betty, aged three. Tom Kettle was a friend and colleague of Tom McDonough, poet and lecturer at UCD, who was executed as a signatory of the proclamation. McDonough was killed by a firing squad on May the 3rd, 1916. He was 38 years old. He left a wife, Muriel Gifford, who drowned a year later, and two small children, Donna, aged four, and Barbara, one. Francis Ledwidge wrote a haunting lament for McDonough, still popular today, he shall not hear the bittern cry in the wild sky. Three months later, Ledwidge was dead too. He was killed at Passchendaele on July the 31st, 1916, three weeks short of his 30th birthday. Any discussion of the intricate mesh of connection between these figures or of the key events of the rising and in the context of writing and war has to include Frank Sheehy Skeffington. Writer, journalist, activist, feminist and pacifist, he campaigned against recruitment in the early days of the war and was jailed for it. Previously, he and his wife, Hannah, a teacher and writer, had campaigned for women's right to a university education and for women's suffrage. Frank was the man who tried to stop the looting in Dublin and was lifted by soldiers, used as a human shield and later killed in Portobello Barracks. A close friend of James Connolly and initially a member of Connolly's Citizen Army, he resigned when his policy shifted towards militarism. He was shot by a firing squad on April the 26th, 1916, aged 37. He left his wife, Hannah, and their son, Owen, who was seven. Poets had plenty of stirring, lyrical things to say about the war at first, before reality struck. They shall not grow old as we who are left grow old, wrote Lawrence Binion in 1914. Binion survived that war and lived to see the next. He died in 1943, aged 74. Rupert Brooke of Forever England fame wrote, War knows no power, safe shall be my going, secretly armed against all death's endeavour. Later, but not much later, he wrote, we have taught the world to die. Brooke, who actually saw little action in the war, died of sepsis from a small cut on a French hospital ship in the Aegean on April the 23rd, 1915, he was 38 years old. Charles Sorley, a Scottish soldier poet, said of most early war poetry, it is a living lie. 
He wrote, When you see millions of the mouthless dead across your dreams in pale battalions go, say not soft things as other men have said. Sorley was killed at Luce near Hullock on October the 13th, 1915. He was 20 years old. Seven. Pierce's words can still interfere with the reader's pulse rate. Naked I saw thee. Beware the risen people. While Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. You could forget what century you're in until you lift your head from the page. Not everything he wrote was quite so inspiring. In The Murder Machine, an article published in January 1916, he referred to Irish people who didn't reject their education in the British system, in other words, Irish people who disagreed with his worldview, as things masquerading as men and women. Men and women, however depraved, have kindly human allegiances, but these things have no allegiance. Like other things, they are for sale. Ireland, he said, was a nation of slaves. Before his oration at the grave of O'Donovan Rossa, not many people would have known who Pierce was. He was a teacher, a poet, and something of an ideologue, judging by his more inflammatory writing. He had a fondness, even a longing, for his personal notion of death and the glory that would follow. Unpick the rhetoric, and this much is still true. Connolly, Pierce, and the others acted for what they believed to be the common good, as the proclamation says. We are what we are now because of them. We'll never know what else we might have been. It's thanks to them that we ask different questions now, free of the stale old ruts of hatred, resentment, suppression, and mistrust. They did, after all, pay with their lives. They did it for the future, for us. For those of us, that is, who stayed when the inconvenient dissenters left, all those who couldn't do business in the climate that followed all our wars, those who couldn't live in a Catholic hegemony, those who were driven off the land, not to mention all those who have been hidden, interred, uncoffined in dark and unmarked graves in that same land since. Taken selectively and in the context of our history, Pierce's words seem thrilling and magnificent. We still teach them to our children. But what else do we teach them? Of all the black hole silences of Easter week, the blackest has to be the silence around the fact that ordinary people did what they could to help other human beings who were bleeding, torn and broken on their streets calling for help. Some of those citizens paid for their humanity with their lives. We're only beginning to admit to this, or to the extent of the casualties. It's as though acts of humanity were considered shameful or dangerous in the light of patriotism. The habit that stuck was one of secret societies, covert violent action, often against civilian targets, and reprisal. We think our wars are over, but are they? If Europe disintegrates, if protectionism gains a foothold, if fascism returns, if Islamic State has its way, if, you think that can't happen? A hundred years ago, they didn't expect the gunmen either. When my generation were taught about the rising, such outrageous acts as bringing a cup of water to a dying teenager in a British soldier's uniform were unmentionable. Giving comfort to a dying boy in uniform could still cost a woman her life in the 1970s, although we like to think it wouldn't happen now. The rising, as it was told to us, was all about the rights and the wrongs of it, success and failure, the winning and the losing and which side, freedom gained and lost, gallantry, martyrdom. 
I'd have liked my younger self to know the full story, to know that other options are open to us in choosing the kinds of people we want to be. I'd like my kids to know that you can give your life to something you care about instead of for it. What a difference a single word can make. Eight. The egos haven't gone away, you know. I'm only saying. And even now, there's people hearing this who'll say, who is she anyway, and what kind of name is that? Mills. It's an English name, they'll say. Never mind that that particular line of family is rooted in inner-city Dublin at least as far back as 1815, which is as far as we've been able to go, the records having been destroyed in one skirmish or another. Never mind that all the women's names, the names that get lost in time, are as Irish as you'd like. Dunn, Kelly, Kavanagh, Hart. There's a Scottish-sounding Jemison and one intriguing edge. This is how they try to keep you quiet. They say you're not Irish enough or you're too Irish. You're not Catholic enough or too Catholic. Too feminist, not feminist enough. Too middle class, too inward looking, backward looking, outward looking. Too pacey or too slow, too familiar or too strange. Too fond of black polo neck sweaters. What they say shouldn't matter to you while you're rooting around with your pen. Nothing should be further from your mind as you grapple with the sentence where a single inaccurate word or misplaced comma can change your meaning. This is the real work, to be conscious of language and how it's used, to consider how you use it yourself as you explore what it means to be human in your time. The business of exploring what it means to be human might seem elegiac, if not downright nostalgic, with cyborgs and post-humanism on the horizon, if not already here, but it matters. You are, after all, human. You're not enough, you never will be, but that dissatisfaction is the very thing that keeps you going. Beckett said it, try again. Go back to the beginning. A tantalisingly lovely spring day, a public holiday. A woman worries about someone far away, a lover or a daughter, working in one of the world's torrid trouble spots where mass murder, kidnapping and mayhem have become the norm. She wishes they were home, safe. She goes to a chair beside the window for the light, for air. She picks up a book and opens it. Thank you. James Ryan's my name, and I direct the Creative Writing Programme here. And we've had the great privilege of Leah teaching on this semester, and indeed briefly in a few years back as well, all totally memorable. You know, there's not ever going to be a rush of questions after Leah Mills speaks or reads. There's something mesmeric about her delivery and about the beautifully paced way she has of putting forward idea. It's the very opposite to assertive. Uh, it's playful. Uh, it's actually got an incredibly musical kind of quality insofar as it's full of small motifs that reoccur, like the man who was held up as they went around the city in section one is revealed in section nine as Sheehy Skeffington. And if you listen carefully 
and look through it, you will see that same uh, beautifully worked uh, prose. And our students and indeed everybody has had a, 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 their lives have been greatly enhanced by contact with Leah. Uh, Danielle has thanked many people this evening and I would certainly like to uh, reiterate all those thanks. But just one in particular and it bears I think directly and indirectly on the fact that we have uh, Leah as writer in residence and that's the role of the Arts Council in supporting our various uh, schemes and plans. Um, Danielle mentioned several of them. The Professor of Poetry, whom I'm very pleased to see is here, is Paula Meehan, equally wonderful uh, presence on the programme. Um, there is the Laureate, Anne Enright, who was with us last day. This is an Arts Council-supported programme at, you know, vast expense, public money. But I would like to assure everybody we're making the very best of it. And when you hear Leah read like this here this evening, you can be so fully confident of that. So I'd like to say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.